tomorrow's Labor Day, and our first big course is wrapping up on Friday with a summative exam. So it's a big deal exam. And as long as everything goes okay, I will have a week off after that. So wish me good luck on studying this week. So it's been a pretty good week. I wrote down a few things that I thought were kind of interesting that I thought I might share. I'll see how many I can get through. Uh, the first one came from our lecture on recommended daily allowances of food. And what was really cool about this one is I didn't know the history of this. These first started in World War II as a response to a lot of um, army recruits who, who were malnourished and didn't meet the guidelines that the military had set for who could be accepted into the, into the military. So these, these dietary reference in, intakes are a response to that to try to raise the bar on, uh, or raise the floor, I guess. These are not as simple as you would think to actually calculate and figure out. And there are people who sit on committees to try and figure out and debate the merits of different requirements for different nutrients and vitamins. Uh, but the basic principle is that they set what's called an estimated ref, an estimated average requirement, which is, let's say for vitamin C, is the amount of vitamin C where half of the people taking that in their diet might be deficient in vitamin C and get something like scurvy if it was really extreme. Um, and half the people would be healthy. So it's that middle point where half the population would be healthy and half would not be getting enough to meet their needs. And then they just go two standard deviations up from that. That means that 95 plus percent of people will be, um, will have all their dietary needs met going two standard deviations up from this median estimated average requirement. So that's the basics, but I guess the science does get pretty complicated and these numbers change all the time and now they've made it more detailed so they have separate requirements depending on your sex and your age group and things like that. The next thing that I wanted to talk about was called Kussmaul breathing, which is this breathing pattern that you see in people that come to the hospital with diabetic ketoacidosis. And these are usually people who have maybe never been diagnosed with diabetes before, maybe kids who have type 1 diabetes. Um, and this might be the first time that they find out that, they're, that they have diabetes. But they're going to feel pretty sick because their body has been um, experiencing really high blood sugar and has actually started to um, generate a lot of acid in their a lot of like an uncontrolled generation of acid in their blood because of the way that they're trying to get uh, to handle this excess of sugar. And uh, what, what you see is deep breathing, deep, rapid sort of hyperventilation breathing that has no, no breaks and no pauses, just a nonstop in and out of breath like bellows. And it's called Kussmaul breathing. So I mentioned that in this diabetic ketoacidosis, the word acid, uh, your blood has gotten very acidic. And so the measurement of that is called pH. So the pH has dropped in your blood. It's more acidic. Well, what's interesting is that your brain uses the pH of your blood to control its breathing. And the reason that normally works is because um, Whenever you're trying to get rid of carbon dioxide, that has to go from your cells, maybe your muscles that are working hard, into your bloodstream, and then it has to pass by your lungs, so it can be, so that the carbon dioxide can be exhaled by your lungs back out and and, and more 
fresh room air can come back into your body. And when carbon dioxide travels through your blood, it makes the blood a little bit more acidic. So that's actually, there's tiny little sensors that sense the pH in your blood. And when your blood is a little bit more acidic, it means it's the signal to your brain to say, I've got to breathe a little bit more to get rid of more carbon dioxide and maybe replenish myself with fresh room air. Well, in the case of diabetic ketoacidosis, it's not that you need to breathe a little bit more, it's that you have this serious metabolic problem that's generating tons more acidity than uh, your body can handle. So your brain doesn't really know the difference in this case, and so it just tries to breathe more rapidly, hoping that if you breathe out more carbon dioxide, it's going to lower the acidity of your blood. Well, it's not in this case because you have this other underlying problem going on. But that's Kussmaul breathing. So it's a really interesting sort of miswiring of the signals in your body that's causing your um, that's causing this rapid deep breathing that doesn't really abate until your acidity level drops. Difference between signs and symptoms. This is just something that I thought people would sort of say redundantly all the time that we hadn't just removed from our vocabularies. But no, there's actually a difference. Symptoms are subjective things that are felt by a patient, whereas signs are actually something that's observed directly by the provider. So headache is a symptom rather than a sign because the person, the patient has to actually report that to you. Nausea is a symptom, blurry vision, lightheadedness, itching, they're all symptoms. Signs are things like temperature, blood pressure, clammy skin, rash, elevated heart rate, jaundice, so the goal isn't to give the symptoms less weight than the signs, like, oh, sorry you feel that way, please let me do my physical exam now. But they go in different parts of a written report. We start with symptoms and how the patient is feeling, and then we gather clues by doing physical exams and by taking labs, and those become the signs. One little trivia question that I learned the answer to recently was the difference between signs and symptoms. I had always thought you could just kind of use them interchangeably because I think I always hear them one after the other in a sentence, but it turns out that signs are, are um, things that you can measure, sort of objective things that you've found upon examining someone, whereas symptoms are subjective things that a patient has felt. So uh, headaches are symptoms rather than signs. Nausea is a symptom, blurry vision, symptom, um, lightheadedness, basically anything that you can ask a patient about that they can tell you, but that you can't really verify exactly via any of your physical exam. And your signs are things like temperature, blood pressure, clammy skin, rash, elevated heart rate, jaundice, etc. I got to participate in the orthopedic surgery interest group. Really amazed. I hadn't seen orthopedic surgery work. There's tons of before and after pictures with x-rays showing bent bones, broken bones, um, uh, physical deformities of limbs, and all of them had after pictures that showed the corrections that had been done through the surgery. It sounded like there really was a lot of variety involved, um, but it's quite competitive to get into that field. 76% of the people who tried to become orthopedic surgeons, got matched into a residency program last year, something like that. Um, emergency medicine is a really cool field as well, and it's something I've been interested in from doing volunteering in Las Vegas. 
and they have like a 95% match rate, which is a lot better. Um, one of the things that struck me during one of my lectures was this idea of magic in medicine. The The quote that got my mind thinking about it was, there's no magic in medical weight loss. That's sort of like a, a truism. And the idea is that we need to look rationally at what works and what doesn't and not become overconfident or and, and just understand what kind of work needs to be done to get the results that we want. But then <laughs> there were some really interesting other findings that actually did, did seem like magic. Like, for instance, um, right after people have bariatric surgery, those are those things like gastric sleeves or bypasses, your blood pressure can drop dramatically. So people who are suffering from serious hypertension and are obese, they might have a gastric sleeve surgery and their blood pressure might drop a ton of points. I'm not sure how many. And, but yet, there's not really a good explanation for exactly why that happens. The person still weighs mostly about the same as they did right before the surgery. And so we just, so there is magic. Um, and the magic is what we haven't figured out how to explain yet. In some, in some places there's no magic, and in some places there is some magic. So I learned about gangrene and pus and necrosis and i don't know it's it, it there were some there were some good pictures that illustrated the different ways that that our cells can die and uh and what happens to them afterward do they sort of stay in place and almost like mummify there or do they get cleared immediately like they vanish as if they were never there um or do they cause um, a lot of immune cells to join in the fight and 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 turn into sort of a liquid mess of of dying cells and immune cells and that's what pus is so i hope you're not eating lunch right now well that about does it i've got a lot of studying to do soon and i'm about to sign off for now so i hope you have a great week and i'll talk to you soon